0: Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Luke 14, 1-14 One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friends, move up to a better place, and then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous.
1: Let's pray one more time together. Father, we are uh, just grateful to be here uh, in your presence and in the presence of one another to worship, to engage in fellowship, to learn from the scriptures. We are grateful for an opportunity to dive into the scriptures and and sort of, in a sense, uh, pick your brain, as it were. Um, we have these texts that were written by humans, um, but they were written by humans in communication and in communion with you through your spirit. And as much as human communication is probably such a step down for you, um, for us, it's the most enlightening uh, human communication that we've ever experienced and can experience, because it's uh, not just human. It's it's humans experiencing you and then being inspired by you and you writing this text through them and we know that you uh, are teaching us and speaking to us and engaging with us through this text and so help us to do that well tonight help us to learn well tonight and not just to learn but to leave this place uh, more ready to engage with you day by day and to engage with others day by day through what we've learned we're grateful for you and for this book in Jesus mighty name Amen. It's good to be with you all this uh, afternoon, evening. We are in a series in the book of Luke, but not just the whole book. We're in particular talking about meals in the book of Luke. And that might seem sort of an odd thing to actually have a series about meals, right? An entire series about uh, a ostensibly about food and we're not obviously talking about food itself uh we're not talking about recipes and food items but the act of getting together with other people in fellowship or other sorts of environments and sharing meals and meals in many ways can be sort of holy moments i'm sure most of us in this room today at some point in our lives have shared a meal with someone where we left that meal walked away from that meal thinking or feeling like something quite special had happened at that meal uh, or maybe that happens to us regularly, hopefully, at some, in some regard. And in the book of Luke, there are all these meals that happen that are pretty special. And so we're in a series talking about uh, these various meals and why Luke uses them so much. He does it a lot, right? Like a, whole, a book that has so many meals in it that you could literally have a, a series on them. Uh, that's, that means that Luke cared about talking about this concept of sharing meals with one another. But before we dive into the book of Luke, how many of you have seen the show Stranger Things? Seems like a weird place to start, maybe, right? About half the room. Okay, so I'm going to try to explain this as well as I can for the half that haven't seen it. And if you want to see it at some point, I'm not spoiling any sort of endings or anything, but the concept of the show actually has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about, uh, or at least has a parallel or an analogy that has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about. In the show Stranger Things, there's a small town in the United States uh, where it's just simple life. People that go to work, and people that enjoy each other's company, and there are these kids who ride their bikes around to arcades and play video games. It's a pretty normal everyday experience. Also in the show, there is a parallel universe. It's a sci-fi show, bear with me. There's a parallel universe called the Upside Down. And in this parallel universe, it's essentially a photographic negative of the real universe. It looks in some ways just like the real world, except that everything is dark and gross, and full of evil, right? And so this photograph is one of the characters, Will Byers, and you can see he's standing at things you can recognize. It's not that it's completely different. There's a sink, and there's water pouring out of the faucet, and there's a toilet next to him, and a window, and a mirror in front of his face. But it's also covered in dark, gross-looking branch things covering the walls, and the whole scene is very dark. And so that's what the upside down is. This parallel universe is a world that looks kind of like this world but is a shadow version of this world that is a version of this world permeated by the concept of evil. But in the show, a gateway opens where... The evil from the upside down has an opportunity to sort of step through the gateway a little at a time and actually start to permeate this world and overtake and overcome this world. But it can't do it all at once. It can't just jump through the gateway and dominate the earth. It has to come in in very small increments, and in increments that are so small that the overwhelming majority of people don't even know it's happening. They don't notice. They have no idea. So there's a scene in the show at one point where there's a pumpkin patch, and all the are dead, but nobody knows why they're dead. And it takes them a significant amount of time to find out that the pumpkins are dead because the upside down, the evil of the upside down, actually under the ground brought sort of a toxicity to the roots that killed the plants. So on the surface, With the naked eye, you had no idea what happened. We saw the effects of the evil. We saw the effects of this shadow world. But the world itself was unrecognizable. It just looked like our world. But there was something eerie going on, and everybody knew it was eerie. They knew something different had happened, but they didn't know what, because it was so hard to tell. So the evil of the upside down very slowly started making its way into what we would consider the real world, right? Now, this is going to sound... It's really strange, until it, 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 hopefully this will make a lot of sense to you over time. This is exactly like the kingdom of God. <laughs> now, exactly like the kingdom of God, obviously, but in the, on the reverse side of things. In the same way that in this show, there is this sort of d- parallel photographic negative universe that looks just like this one, but has a different value system that functions just a bit differently, and that slowly kind of comes into this world in ways that sometimes we don't notice, sometimes we don't see it, but the effects of it are still very real. If you read the scriptures, the kingdom of God functions in the world today just like this. There is this sense where our world, although our world, according to scripture, is the upside down. Our world is the world that's permeated by darkness. Our world is the world that's permeated by a lot of evil. And the kingdom of God is a world that is somewhat in many ways similar to this one, but the value system of the kingdom of God is entirely different than the value system of this world. The kingdom of God is a world of light and beauty and hope. And there is a sense where the kingdom of God in some ways felt very absent from the world in which we live. In the New Testament, there are passages, for example, that describe Satan as a roaring lion, sort of looking around the earth, looking for people to devour At one point in the New Testament, it even refers to Satan as the god of this age, because he had so much dominance over the ways of the world. And then Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, one of the first things he says when he starts his public ministry, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, is, I'm paraphrasing, but almost exactly this way, Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The the term at hand could also be uh, translated "near." So repent, turn away from the ways of this world, away from the ways of evil, because the kingdom of God is near. Now, the kingdom of God didn't just come in like a tsunami and overtake the earth. When Jesus said it was near or at hand, he meant it's coming in. And it's not going to come in right away in ways that are going to be overwhelmingly obvious to all of us, but you'll start to see the effects of the kingdom of God. And when the effects of the kingdom of God start to get rolled out in your midst, you're going to know and understand at that point that something very significant is going on. And so Jesus comes and says essentially that his bringing is that gateway, that doorway that opens up the avenues of light and beauty and goodness to start to come in and creep in to a dark world. And so this world is the upside down. This world is the world that actually has the backwards value systems. And the kingdom of God, in ways that are counterintuitive to us who have been trained to think like normal humans, the kingdom of God comes in and says, all of your value systems are backwards or upside down from the value systems of God and his kingdom. So, for example, and Jesus talks about this all the time, Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus teaches his followers how to pray. What does he, how does he start, right? He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've all heard that, that prayer so many times that I don't think we really understand the significance sometimes of what that means. Jesus is using the second part of that clause to explain the meaning of the first. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's the coming of the values of heaven to earth. So when Jesus says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's the description of the kingdom. I mean, the kingdom's way more complex than that, but in a nutshell, that's essentially what it is. It's Jesus, through his first coming, bringing the value systems of heaven and and the beauty of heaven and the goodness of heaven and the hope and peace of heaven into a corrupt and broken earth. That's the kingdom of God. And in many ways, it continues to look similar to the world, but it just takes the value systems of the world and shows that that the value systems of the kingdom of God are counterintuitive. He takes all of our systems and he sort of flips them around and shows us that the way we think about the world is just completely off from the way God desires us to think about it. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. There's this passage in Matthew that's very similar to a passage Steve talked about a couple of weeks ago at our family service. Uh, I'm going to use Matthew's version for a reason that will become clear in a moment. In Matthew, there's this scene where Jesus has a meal and, with some tax collectors and other people that you would not normally associate with in their society. And this is what it says. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Again, tax collectors, Steve explained this a couple of weeks ago not the kind of people anybody wanted to spend time with. They were criminals. They used their position as a tax collector to skim off the top and take money from their own people. Um, And so this is not the kind of person you would share a meal with. But then Jesus says, follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So they're hanging out with a whole room full of undesirable people, according to the values of society. When the Pharisees saw this, the Pharisees being the leaders of Israel at this time, the religious leaders, when the Pharisees saw this, or they were one group of religious leaders, they were interpreters of the law. That's the best way to think of them. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So the Pharisees are thinking of themselves as pious people who follow God, who interpret the law properly, who spend time with the righteous people, the right people, and when they see Jesus doing the opposite, they're baffled. Why would your teacher, who claims to be a godly, holy man, hang out with these people whose value systems are so completely different than ours? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. Obviously, that's an analogy, right? Jesus is thinking of himself as a doctor coming to heal sin, to bring light and beauty and goodness into a dark place. But this is the part where that Matthew brings up that you don't find in Luke in this particular passage, and it's very important. He says, but go and learn what this means. By the way, if Jesus starts a sentence with go and learn what this means, it's probably a good idea to go and learn what it means, right? And I don't think we spend a lot of time on this verse. And actually, I think that this, this phrase that Jesus is about to use, he's quoting from the Old Testament. Okay? From Hosea 6, verse 6, this phrase that Jesus is about to use to me is the single most important phrase or sentence in, the, in all of the Gospels to explain why Jesus and the Pharisees didn't get along. This is the most important thing he ever said in regard to their conflict. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not, not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The context of Hosea that Jesus pulls this phrase from is this. The religious leaders at that time, who weren't Pharisees because they didn't exist yet, the Pharisees came into existence after the time of the Old Testament was over, but before the time of the New Testament. There was a 400-year gap in between the writings of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the Pharisees came into existence in that gap, but they still essentially served a similar role to the religious leaders of the Old Testament period. And in that period, a lot of the religious leaders of Israel at the time cared so much about the law... That they were very strict about the sacrifices at the temple that you would have to do to cover sins. They were very strict about rituals and rites of fasting and festivals and all these things according to the letter of the law. But when it came to actually showing mercy to the people around them, if the law got in the way of mercy, they would choose law over mercy most of the time. So if their choosing of the law over mercy led to the oppression or suffering of their own countrymen for the, for the religious leaders in the Old Testament era, at least in the prophetic era, that was actually okay for them because to them, to follow the letter of the law meant that they were in God's good graces and good favor, even if it led to the oppression of people around them. And Jesus' thing here is that If we're really thinking about the spirit of the law and what the law was meant to do, it was meant to bring life and peace and beauty and hope to people, not oppression. And I desire mercy, not sacrifice, meaning that to sacrifice people for the sake of following the law perfectly is the opposite of the very spirit in which the law was intended. The intention of the law is to try to point people in the right direction towards finding relationship with God, relationship with one another, and creating an orderly society, not to oppress people. So Jesus uses the same quote that Hosea uses to tell people that you've gotten rid of the concepts of mercy in order to follow the law, but I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The Pharisees, as interpreters of the law, their entire ministry, their entire lives were made up, though, of following the law as well as they thought they possibly could. That was the point of what they were trying to accomplish. So they didn't really like that Jesus used this Hosea passage because they know that passage. And they know that what Jesus is doing is telling the Pharisees, you're just like them. You're sacrificing humans and leading to their poverty and their oppression by trying to follow the letter of the law perfectly rather than caring about people. That's essentially what he was getting at. So we get into Luke then, and Luke starts talking about meals all the time, as we've been seeing in this series, meals all over the place. And in these meals, Jesus is using the meals in many ways to illustrate the values of the kingdom and to show the Pharisees and everybody else, by the way, in the area, and not just Judea, not just Jerusalem, but Jesus obviously wasn't even from that area. He was from Galilee to the north. So Judea, Jerusalem, Galilee, the entire region of the area, Jesus is using these various meals and interactions to show people that the values of the kingdom and the values of the people at the time are not necessarily the same. But we also have to set up this meal we're going to look at with a little bit from Luke chapter 13 to show how the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees heightened, and that will lead us into the meal that Jesus has at the home of a Pharisee. First, let's look at Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. It says this, on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. I want to quickly explain those two things, Sabbath and synagogue. A synagogue was similar to, but not exactly like what we're doing right now. It was kind of, kind of, again, this is an oversimplification, there are differences, it was kind of an early Jewish version of what we experience in a church. It was a place for Jewish people to get together, to read out the texts of Scripture, to interpret them, to discuss them, to have conversation about them, and to worship God together. And a lot of, in a lot of ways, the church, what we're doing right now, was kind of inspired by the synagogue, in a lot of ways, that's kind of where we got the idea. Like, hey, that's a great idea. Let's get together and let's read the passages of scripture and talk about them and discuss and worship God together. And so we continue to do that. Now, you would worship on the on the Sabbath, which was Saturday, the seventh day of the week, but you couldn't work. It was a day only for worship and fellowship and discussion and spending time with your family, but you could not work. And they interpreted work very strictly. Lots of things that we wouldn't call work, they did call work. You couldn't do most things on the Sabbath. It was a day to do essentially nothing, and this was a law. You had to follow it. So Jesus is in a synagogue, and he's teaching on the Sabbath. They're, They're allowing him to get up and teach. They recognize that he has spiritual authority and that he has a perspective that they want to listen to. It says, a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. Just essentially means she was very, very sick. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her... He called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. So they considered Jesus healing this woman an act of work. The fact that he did a miracle, by the way, right in front of their faces, doesn't appear to come up. Isn't that strange? He just performed a miracle, and that's not what the text addresses. Now, obviously, Luke's not giving an exhaustive account of the moment. I'm sure there were oohs and ahs, and people were probably pretty blown away. But ultimately, the most important thing that happens in the scene is what Luke focuses on. And the most important thing isn't that he did a miracle, because that's not what he's talking about. That's not what anyone seemed to care about. It's the fact that Jesus healed on the Sabbath and that they were indignant about this, that this is not acceptable to them, that Jesus did what they considered work, On a Sabbath day. And then they even say, listen, there are, by the way, how long has she been sick? 18 years. But their thing is, you could wait six more days. To her, 18 years, right? She just wants to be whole again. Then it says this, the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give water? So if, you're, if your animal, your ox or your donkey, wants water on the Sabbath, would you not lead it to give it a drink of water? Is that not providing a benefit to it on the Sabbath? Well, this is a woman, a human being, who's been sick for 18 years. By the way, there actually is in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Dead Sea community was a very strict community, significantly more strict than most what we would call mainstream Jewish people at the time. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there actually is a document that says the Dead Sea community, actual law in one of their documents, that if your donkey or ox falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, you have to wait till the next day to pull it out, and if it dies, too bad. But that's actually, that's one community among the Jews. The vast majority of mainstream Jewish people would absolutely have pulled their ox or donkey out of a ditch or given it water on the Sabbath, and that's the point Jesus is making. He said, then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, he brings up daughter of Abraham, by the way, as a stinging indictment. Should not this woman, one of your own sisters of of country, sort of nationalship and faith. This is your sister, by the way. This is somebody who belongs to your people. A daughter of Abraham whom Satan has kept bound. And by the way, he brings up Satan as well. So he said, first of all, she's one of you. And second of all, she's being bound by the forces of darkness and evil. The adversary, our adversary, has overcome her with this iniquity, this sickness. So he's throwing everything he can to try and show them that everything about this scenario should, should call them to a desire for mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's reminding them why she's deserving of mercy a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her. When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. So the Pharisees are already angry with Jesus because he's humiliated them. Now, the very next section, this is interesting, Luke goes immediately from that into a parable Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. I started with the kingdom of God, and this is why, because it matters to the story says, then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What, I, what shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed. Mustard seeds are very small. It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched on its branches. Most mustard trees grow to between three and four meters, so they're about as tall as that basketball hoop over there. That's about the average height. Of a mustard tree. So, this very tiny seed can turn into a tree about that high. There's even a passage in the Old Testament that said that the mustard tree is wonderful for their area because birds can perch on its branches and find shade and build homes. And the mustard tree is sort of this big, lush tree that provides life to the things around it. But it starts as a tiny little seed. What is Jesus' point here with this parable? It's kind of what I started with, with the upside down, that the kingdom of God comes in in ways initially that you don't notice. It'd be like walking down a road and not noticing a mustard seed on the ground. You would probably wouldn't even know it was there. But it eventually flourishes into something like a mustard tree, which is about twice the height of any of us, and if we ran into it, we would notice that it was there, right? And not only is it there, but its roots dig deep. It provides life to things around it, and if you tried to uproot it, it wouldn't work if you just did it with your hands by yourself. You couldn't walk up to a mustard tree and rip it out of the ground, Right? Its roots run deep. It provides life and beauty to the things around it. That's what he's saying about the kingdom. Now, this is not to say the kingdom grows because it doesn't. The kingdom is what it is. It saying that it grows is not right, quite right. It's not the, quite the right word for it. It's that the kingdom of God is a thing, but that it's the values of heaven and the, the, the realm of heaven crashing into the earth and having a collision with the earth, but the collision begins with things that we don't always see or notice at first. Now, here, why does Jesus start to tell this parable right after this story? Right? Because Jesus performed a miracle that was a kingdom miracle, and what did they focus on? That he broke the Sabbath. So Jesus' point is, What I just did in your midst at this moment was a mustard seed. I brought a vision, an example of the beauty of the kingdom of God right in front of your face, and you didn't notice. You didn't even see it. But this mustard seed that I just performed in front of you, this this one small miracle of the beauty of the kingdom, a whole series of these is going to plant a garden of beauty that's going to provide life for those who do see it and embrace it. Jesus's miracle was this mustard seed that they missed, but if they had seen it, they would have seen the life he was providing. Jesus is bringing the kingdom values in very small measure as they start to break into the values of the world to show the values and and the beauty of the kingdom of God. One more quick story in Luke 13 before we look at our... our our meal. It says, at the the same time, or at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Herod was the king of Judea, serving under the rule of the Romans at the time. Jesus replied, go and tell that fox. He just called the king of Judea a fox. He does not care. Uh, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. What he's saying is I'm bringing, I'm, I'm going to drive out demons, I'm going to heal people, I'm going to do kingdom work until I reach my goal, his goal being his death, to fully then bring in the benefits of the kingdom to those who follow him, salvation, life in the kingdom. Jesus' death allows us to be citizens of the kingdom that he came to inaugurate. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of of the Lord, So Jesus came in the name of the Lord. Jesus came in the name of the kingdom of God, and they have missed it. And he laments over Jerusalem, 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 you kill your prophets rather than seeing what God is doing in your midst. You kill your prophets rather than seeing that they're coming to teach you something about God's kingdom. So then we get to our passage in Luke, and you have it on the sheets in front of you. So again, one Sabbath, Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. So again, one of these interpreters of the law invites Jesus over for a meal. Now, everything I just set up should help this next part make sense. It says, he was being carefully watched, right? That phrase makes sense after what we just read. He was being carefully watched because they were really unhappy with him. They were really unhappy with the fact that he was taking their values and turning them around. There in front of him was a man suffering. By the way, there in front of him sounds kind of like a setup. They're watching him. He's on, it's on the Sabbath. And just out of nowhere is a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law. So before he does the healing this time, he looks at them and says, is it lawful to the heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, again, this is an ongoing controversy that they've already been dealing with. So this time he just asks them to expose their answer before he takes action. But they remain silent, it says. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. So here's Jesus another miracle. Then he asked, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? Again, if you're at the Quran community that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, apparently not. But every other Jewish person at the time would have answered yes. If my ox or donkey falls into a well on the Sabbath, of course I'm going to pull it out. And they had nothing to say, because they get the point. You would rescue a donkey from death, but if I heal somebody, you're going to accuse me of working on the Sabbath. Your values and the values of the kingdom that I have brought with me are not the same. Verse 7, when he noticed how the guests, by the way, so this is them going into the meal, it says he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table and told them this parable. Now, how this worked at the table was a U-shape, like a horseshoe. There was a U-shape in the room, and the middle seat on sort of the connecting wing of the u shaped couch, that's the place of honor and all of the people then that sit from the, the middle of the U-shape out to the edges goes in descending order of honor. It was very structured how these meals went. So the, the person of the highest position or greatest honor in the, at the meal at the time got that, ma- that main seat in the middle. So they were kind of the center of attention. And everybody else, again, would slowly sit in, in, a, in a continuing descending order. It's not just one honorable person and then everybody else sits wherever. It's very specific to who you are as you go along until the people of lowest honor are at the very ends of the horseshoe. So Jesus says this, When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host invited both of you and will come to and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place, because even if you are deserving of the second or third or fourth seat, you're going to have to go to the end, because now you've been humiliated in front of everyone. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humbled themselves will be exalted. This fits in with the passage that Leanne read towards the beginning of the service in Philippians. This is said of Jesus. So by the way, Jesus teaches these things and then is these things. And it's all over Scripture. Like if you read the Beatitudes when Jesus says, blessed are the meek or blessed are the peacemakers, then you see later in the book of Matthew where Jesus is described as being meek or described as being a peacemaker. So every time he teaches something, you see the Bible at some later point describe him as that thing. This is the epitome of who Jesus himself is. He's somebody who consistently placed himself beneath people so that in the end, God himself, the most honorable one, would then honor Jesus by giving him the most exalted name the name by which all of us would be saved. But Jesus didn't go around touting that honor. He received the honor by never once seeking it, by always placing himself as the servant of all. That's Jesus' point. That's kingdom ethics. That's kingdom ethics at a meal. Give honor to those around you. Defer to those around you rather than trying to draw the attention to yourself. And in the end, ultimately, people will see that and know that there's something different about you. There's a different way about the way you carry yourself and that'll ultimately draw attention to God himself and to the kingdom. So then when God then comes to you and says, you always took the low position. Now let me exalt you. Your exaltation will actually mean something. Being exalted at one meal means nothing in the end. People will forget about it by the next day. Being exalted by God means everything. And humility is the kingdom ethic, That one of the kingdom things that leads to that. And then finally at the end of the passage, he says this. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, your, right, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So it seems like a bit of a shift. He tells a parable, and then he says something kind of different right afterwards, but the conclusion of the the second parable explains the first. Being repaid at the resurrection of the righteous, ultimately what that means is being honored by God himself is the only honor we should ever desire. And the best way to find God, the honor of God is to know that the people around you deserve for you to defer to them, to humble yourself before them, and to serve them and love them. And he starts to then talk about the sorts of people we should be serving in the process. Now, this is uh, I, I'm about to make a second television reference in the same sermon. Bear with me on this. I just think it's hilarious. Uh, if you ever watch the show Big Bang Theory, there's a character named Sheldon Cooper who has this exact same problem. And this happens all the time in the course of the show where he doesn't like gift giving because anytime someone gives him a gift, he then feels obligated to return another gift of equal value. And there's all these episodes where somebody gives him a gift and you see him like calculating the cost and looking it up online. And then on their next birthday or Christmas or whatever, he'll buy a gift of the exact same value. And he hates this process and says that in the end, none of us really come out ahead Except the first the last person to die of the two, right? We all want to go on exchanging gifts for the rest of our lives, and if you gave me the last gift and then you die, I come out in the end. That's how he thought about these things. Not now all of that, obviously, gift giving has a relational value, so he misses the point. But there's a sense where that's kind of what Jesus is sort of getting at in a weird way. His point is, what if you spent your time deferring to and humbling yourself before people who offer nothing to you in terms of value, other than just simply being with them. Like, what if you invited people to a banquet that could never possibly afford to have a banquet and invite you to it, and maybe don't even have a home to invite you into? What if you spent your time with those people? Then we know, ultimately, in the end, that you're not doing it for personal gain. You're simply doing it because the values of the kingdom say to love your neighbor, to love the people around you, in the same way that Jesus did. So, I mean, it's not saying don't hang out with people of means. You can have friends that can have banquets, right, I guess? But his point is just to say that the values of the kingdom, the sorts of people that we would include and invite to a kingdom banquet are not the same values that we would use to invite people to a banquet in the world. We wouldn't focus on giving the best seats or even inviting the people who could reciprocate. We would focus on spending time with the people who have no one else to value them or love them or spend time with them. The mode and method of inclusion is entirely different in the kingdom value. This is what it means for Luke to describe Jesus using meals to explain the way that the kingdom of God has an inbreaking with the kingdom of this world. And this doesn't come initially with pomp and circumstance. This doesn't come with Jesus running around in the streets as a conquering king and dominating the world around him and saying, I'm doing all of this for God and for God's kingdom. He does it at meals with people. He does it in the streets, meeting people who are sick and need to be healed people who have no food and need to be fed, like Patrick talked about last week at the feeding of the 5,000. But he's bringing glimpses of a better world, glimpses of a better value system, a kingdom world, a kingdom value system that starts to come in with the first coming of Jesus and will come in more fully at the second coming of Jesus as he seeks to renew and recreate this world into a better and different way of thinking about the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for time in the word. We're grateful... Uh, for understanding that this kingdom ethic and this kingdom value um, is so, in some ways, so counterintuitive to the way that we think about things. But if we live by this ethic and we live by this value, then we get a glimpse of heaven as it crashes upon us here on the earth. We get a glimpse of your value system as we bring it into the world and show people the love and the light of what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God, and to ultimately, most importantly, to be known by you and to be loved by you and to be in relationship with you. Father, teach us to be these kinds of christians teach us to be these kinds of people fill us with your spirit and guide us as we seek to love those around us who the world might not think about who the world might not love but who deserve it because they're humans made in your image we're grateful for this time in jesus mighty name amen